we got an entire book of Acts to go through, and I'm really excited about it. Before we do that, there's one thing that I need to make it very, very clear, and that is, getting all kind of weird noises. What the Bible meant then is what the Bible means now. Okay, very, very clear about that. Um, we had to take, and now what we do is we take the cultural aspect and we had to translate it into our cultural aspect. Okay, so what the Bible means then is what the Bible means now. So let's explain that a little bit with uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Okay, so when we get to Acts 18, verse 1, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. We need to understand that he's leaving Athens and going to Corinth. What does the Bible mean then? What does it mean now? So then, let's see, Athens, where is he coming from? This is the, the logical society. This is the, the headiness. Uh, there's a, a photo I've got for you guys. When we think of Athens, this is what we're thinking of. We're thinking of Socrates, Plato, the Socratic method. Um, pretty much uh, that is what you're, you're thinking of when you think of Athens. This is where Paul just came from. So how do we translate into that into now? When I say from what the Bible means then, this is what the Bible means now. Uh, what, what is the equivalent of that today? So today we think of a college classroom, right? We think of a college classroom, there's a professor. So Paul's coming from what we, that they would consider themselves the intellectual elite. So let's say Paul today, instead of going to uh, marble columns, he's going to a college campus, right? So that's how we translate it. Track him with me there. So let's take what the Bible means then, what the Bible means now, and have that culture. I think I've said that enough to where I don't have to say it again. Okay. But Corinth. He heads to Corinth. Here's the great thing about Corinth. It's like a perpetual, I don't know if you call it great. I don't know. Um, some people would say. But the great thing about Corinth, it was, it was like a perpetual Mardi Gras. 24-7. 24-7 Mardi Gras. Since this is a Sunday morning, I do not have a depiction of that. Um, but uh, let's just say pirate. We're going to go with pirate. It's a pirate town. It's like sailors, right? So this is what, this is what we got going on in Corinth, right? When you're in Corinth, got to think pirate town, sailors, um, de debauchery. Uh, right. There's an entire book written to the Corinthians because of their perpetual Mardi Gras-ness, right? Now, what does that translate into today? Uh, what that translates into today is actually this. Yeah, it's the same picture because anytime I, I, uh, I think of pirates, it doesn't matter if it's 2,000 years ago or today, it's going to be a man that's really dirty in Victorian dress, right? So we have him going from the intellectual elites to a sailor pirate town. So he, how do we know this? He's made a 46-mile trek from Athens to Corinth. Now... Why is it a pirate town? Why is it sailor? Why is it full of all this? What you have is this, um, you all know the Panama Canal, right? You're right. Panama Canal, instead of going all the way around these continents, you just go and have this canal straight through the middle, boom, gets you to where. So I'm going to do this. If you see Sincrea, and then you see Corinth, you see that big, huge piece there at the bottom? Instead of going all the way around that, you're going to go to the port of Sincrea as a sailor. You're going to port there. And then you're going to get out and just go and go the seven-mile track to Corinth, chill out there for a few days. And while you're there, a bunch of workers are going to take all your stuff off of one boat, and it's going to, they're just going to do the little trek over to the port of Corinth and put all your stuff on another boat. If your boat's even smaller, they'll just take it all out of the water and, like, 
take it to the port of Corinth, which is just, I, I don't even know how that was possible back then, but they did it, right? So we have some Korea to Corinth. So that is where Paul is. He is in Corinth. And Corinth is where the sailors would totally just chill out until their goods made it there, right? Now, let's get to verses two and three. This is where I get excited as a fellow extrovert, okay? It says, and he found a Jew. This is my favorite word, is found. Okay, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of the Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. Okay, so um, I'm not gonna ask introverts to raise your hand because that would be horrible for you. Okay, but keyword found. And so I have a great graph for us to understand introverts a little bit. Um, and this is how they find friends, is an extrovert found them, liked them, and adopted them, and also dogs count as friends, okay? That's why I love this verse, is Paul found them. So as a fellow extrovert, I'm like, yes. And as all my best friends can attest to, they're like, yeah, that's pretty much true. So you have Paul finding them. And when he finds them, he's not talking, um, he doesn't relate to them on a Christian level. They're Jews and they're tent makers. That's what he refers to them as. That's how he, and then the thing is, he finds them and then he's like, hey, we do the same thing. That's cool. We just totally live together. Like, okay. Right? And anywhere Paul goes, he's making disciples. Right? And he's doing it really, really well. And this is what I love. He found things to, to relate to with them, and then he lives with them. And I would make the argument, and even some scholars would make the argument, that this is his first converts in Corinth. You notice how it doesn't speak of them being Christians. They're Jews. They're tent makers. That's about all we know. So Paul relates to them on a level that he knows. So I'm going to say it again. What the Bible means then, what the Bible means now, what are we doing with people around us to relate on that level, right? There are always little bitty things that we can relate to on a relational level with someone. Paul used tent making and being a Jew to relate to Priscilla and Aquila and then forms a relationship, converts them, and then disciples them, right? And that's where I want to get to. That is the overarching theme that I'm seeing in Acts 18 today, and that is that this, this is the main point, you ready? The, the Baptist main point thingy that we always do. Personal discipleship is a primary tool the Lord uses to grow his church. Personal discipleship is a primary tool the Lord uses to grow his church. And I'm not just talking numbers, people. We're not talking numbers, we're talking spiritually. Righteously, graciously, everything. That is how the Lord grows. How do I know this? How do we know that that is how he grows his church? I don't know. Maybe because the last thing Jesus says before he ascends into heaven is what? Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Okay, good. We need to know that. I don't know why he always says he has to say that, but he does. Just to remind the disciples. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. Before he ascends into heaven, Jesus says, go forth and make disciples. That is what we're to do. That is what we're called to do. That is what we are supposed to obey. Because the overwhelming amount of goodness that has been poured out onto us, that is why we obey. Not because we're afraid of some God with a cosmic hand that's going to punish us. We obey because of how much goodness has been heaped onto our lives with grace and forgiveness. So let's move on to verse 4. Paul works during the week, right? And this proves it. And he reasoned in the synagogue and every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, he's there on the Sabbath, not during the week. In this part, when he's in Corinth, he is like us. We are like Paul. Okay? Paul's there just on the weekends. He's there preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel. Just like a lot of you here. This is one thing I love about our church. And I love about C3 is, is everyone here. I've been here for five and a half years. And you serve. You are like Paul on, the, on, on Sabbath. You guys are setting up chairs doing coffee, doing, running sound, running slides, ensuring our security. You are back in the back changing diapers and teaching kids and doing all these amazing things and serving so well on the Sabbath. And then during the day, week, Paul's tent making with Priscilla and Aquila. And we, we go to our nine to five, right? We're writing code. We're taking care of children, raising children, teaching children, doing law, I make metal flat. That is what we're doing during the week. We are a lot like Paul here. But one thing I would say that Paul does really, really well that I hope could encourage all of you and myself included is are we making disciples during the week as Paul does, right? We're really good on Sundays, really good. I've seen it with my own eyes and I'm blessed by it. My children in the back are blessed by it. But here's where it changes a little bit, right? Verse 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said, Do your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So let's stop with verse 5. Silas and Timothy show up. What does this mean? Why do we care? Well, Silas and Timothy show up from other church plants with the monies, making it rain to give the, the euphemism or the, the modern youth slang for all you young people in here. And he takes that money, and now he can dedicate his entire full workday to preaching the gospel, right? He now does that. That is what we see him doing. He is now obsessed with preaching the word, Okay. Now, what is he doing? What is Paul doing there? Now that he's dedicating all his time, what is Paul doing in the synagogues? He is probably, actually, he's, probably, he's using the same exact scriptures that the Jews use to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, right? He takes the Old Testament and he's just like, hey, uh, oh, the, well, he probably didn't have to pull it out because he had it memorized because that's what they did back then. But let's just say he pulls it out. He's like, so um, it says here, blah, 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 blah about a Messiah, and it shows that Jesus did this. 
What would we just do today? What would we say today to prove that Jesus was the Messiah? See, here's the, is I want to go into all the prophecies. I want to do it. I just want to get and dig in there. But that's like an entirely separate sermon. So I'm just going to say blah, 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 blah instead, right? And just say, what would, what would something like that be today? And so I have an example of the probability of Jesus fulfilling every single prophecy foretold about him in the Old Testament, right? There's hundreds of them. But let's just say he fulfills eight. Let's say Jesus says, you know what? I may not be the son of God. I'm going to go and I'm going to try to purposely fulfill eight of the prophecies about the coming Messiah. If he was to purposely go out and try to do that, the probability is 10 to the 17th power of completing that. So it's like 10 with like zero, 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 like comma, zero. Yeah, there's a lot. I don't even know how to say that word. So to get a better understanding of us Texans and it being Girl uh, Girl Scout cookie season of what that means, uh, the probability of Jesus fulfilling only eight of the prophecies, um, if he even tried to, is I'm going to take a stack of Thin Mint cookies. We all know those are the best ones. Um, If you say otherwise, you can leave. Um, We're going to take Thin Mint cookies. I'm going to stack them two feet high. Okay? I would say knee high, but if it was Charles Vaughn, that'd be like four feet um, so we're going to say two feet high, right? Two feet high. And I'm going to take a bite out of one of them. And, I'm, and we're going to cover the entire state of Texas, every square inch, with stacks of two feet high of Thin Mint cookies. And I'm going to take a bite. And I'm going to throw it in the middle. And then I'm going to say, hey, Gatlin, because I like putting you in awkward situations, I'm going to put a blindfold on you. And I want you to go and walk and pick one cookie. The probability of Gatlin picking up that one bitten cookie is the probability of Jesus fulfilling only eight of the hundreds of prophecies. So this is what we have Paul doing. He's showing all the prophecies to the Jews. He's like, do you not see it? Do you not? It's everywhere. The book of Isaiah points to it. Jesus is God. He was the coming Messiah. He was who we waited for and you're not seeing it. And on top of proving it to them, he would preach the gospel. And this is, this is where, this is where Paul's heart comes out. Because he was saved. He finally realized that my prayers, my, the idols, the, the things that I would put up, everything I do as a Jew, these rituals that I'm fulfilling and doing are pointless Because Jesus has come. A holy and just and perfect God came down onto this earth. The very earth that he formed and created, he comes down. He humbles himself so that we can have eternal life. We can be saved. Our sins that we deserve to die for. The sins that the Jews have perpetually been sacrificed after sacrifice after sacrifice. Saying, God, I'm not worthy of you. Jesus came down and he fulfilled that as the Messiah. And Paul's saying, well, he's already done it. You're saved. You believe. You have to believe. That's it. You believe that you need the Messiah. You need Jesus. He saves us. Oh, he lived a perfect life. He fulfills, to throw out the big theology term that some of you long for, he is the penal substitutionary atonement on the cross for us. He takes our place. And I'm so thankful for that. 
so thankful. And Paul was so thankful that he was willing to go to places and talk about it openly. Not only where he worked with Priscilla and Aquila, but in the synagogues. But what happens in verse 6 is he gets fed up. They're not listening. Though he has pointed out all of the points, showed all the scriptures, their own scriptures, why Jesus is the Messiah, they still will not listen. And that's when he quotes Ezekiel 33. And with Ezekiel 33, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry I lost my place. It says, blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. And with that, what that means is that is the watchman's verse. In Ezekiel 33, there is this, this discussion of a watchman, right? And you have a town, a fortress, and there's a guy who's up there, and he is basically watching out for oncoming attacks, right? He, attacks are coming, and the watchman is like, yo, what's up? I'm watching. And, and if someone's coming, right? If someone's coming, he then says, hey, there's people coming. You might die. You might want to do something, right? If he doesn't see them and they, people come and people get killed, it's on the watchman, right? The blood's on the watchman's heads. But if the watchman's like, ring-a-ling-ling, fire, whatever they did. You know, Mulan, they had the fire thing, and that was cool. You know, maybe they did that here, right? They rem and the watchman says, hey, there, is, there are people coming to attack you. If those people do not listen to the watchman and then they die, the blood is on their heads. All right? There's a quick synopsis of Ezekiel 33 of what he is referring to. The blood is on your head. I've come here. I've told you. I've shown you. I've preached the gospel, yet you do not listen to me. Are we being watchmen for our friends? For our families? Are we lovingly letting them know what is to come? What are the possibilities if we don't trust in Jesus? It's weird. It's awkward. What are we doing? Are we living that out? Are we being the watchmen for our friends and family or those in close proximity to us? Right? Paul's saying, look, I've done that. Blood's on your own heads. All right? He doesn't really want people to die and have blood on their heads. But he's just simply stating that there. So verses 7 through 8. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice. His house was next door to the synagogue. This is the part I loved. He's just like, I'm done! Peace! And then he just goes right next door. Right? Like, total troll move. Just like, yeah. And he goes right next door. They don't want to listen to me. I'm done with you. I'm going to go next door and do the same thing. Right? Goes to Tisha Justice. But here's the thing. You would think, you would think Paul is very, maybe downtrodden, feels like a failure, right? He just spent all this time proclaiming the gospel, making very logical, very thought out arguments, and no one will listen. So he leaves, goes next door, and we see in verse 8 what shows up. Who shows up? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. What? Paul was so incredibly frustrated with no one listening to him that he left. It, almost in a frenzy, just totally ticked off. 
But then we see Crispus, the synagogue leader. Let me just um, put that in today's terms. I'm not going to say it again, but um, we have him leaving the synagogue, failure. But then the synagogue leader comes to love Jesus. I'm going to go to the local mosque and I'm going to preach the gospel. And they're going to kick me out for obvious reasons. But then I'm going to go like next door to Denny's and have some pancakes. Sorry, I'm on keto. I'm going to have eggs. Whatever. And, um, and the imam, the equivalent to the pastor of the mosque, is going to show up with his family later and say, hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus. I want to, I want to know more about this. You said something. And this is something I want to be very clear here because I think there's a lot of people here that need to hear this. With our God, our self-prescribed failures are stepping stones to his glory. Okay? And you need to hear that. You need to know that. And you need to believe that. Because God has a great masterpiece that he's painting and the failures are strokes in that masterpiece. And he's going to use it. Okay? Your failures do not define who you are. All right? Because we had people that believed that, that Jesus failed on the cross and he proved them wrong three days later. And you're going to have failures that are going to happen and they're going to, it's going to come to fruition. We're going to see the beauty that comes from those failures. God's painting a masterpiece with your life and he's going to use you to show and reflect his glory. And your failures don't define you. And here's something else that I really think that we need to hear is that the failures of your leaders, the failures of your parents growing up, the failures of your teachers, your friends, they don't define you. Your church, your church is going to fail you. Your elders are going to fail you. That does not define you. They're going to affect you, but that doesn't define you. What how are we defined? We are defined by one thing and one thing alone. Christ and who he sees us as. And I take so much refuge in the fact that I am seen as an adopted son of the Most High. That a holy and just God came down here and decided to die on my behalf. And then he no longer seeing my sin or seeing your sin, he sees Jesus in your place. That is what defines you. You are a beautiful created being made in the image of God and you are to serve and love and glorify him because of all the amount of goodness that he's done for you. We are defined by that goodness. It's amazing, right? We get to be a part of that. We get to go forth and share that goodness, be a part of that glory, and take part in that. And your failures are part of that. And they do not define you. They are only a reflection of his glory because God takes the bad and he makes it amazing. And you need to hear that. You need to know that. Because we're going to fail. But keep your head up. Because God is good all the time. All the time he is good. Right? Let's get into verses 9 and 11 now. And this is where I would say, in this chapter, we see three generations of discipleship. 
That's why we're talking about discipleship. And we're going to get there. And w- before we go any forward, what I would say is discipleship is something that happens between believers. Right? And if that's something you're not, if this is something that you're filling out, you're like the Jews. You're just, you kind of got your belief system. You don't really believe the whole Jesus thing. And you're filling it out. That, what we're about to go into, that's going to be something that isn't necessarily for you. Because discipleship is for believers to believers. And, and we want to go forth and make disciples. We want people to believe in Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus, I invite you to start that conversation in your head. Right? Start thinking about it. Start formulating the questions that you need to formulate. All right? And and find a leader. Find anyone. Let's talk about it. Because I want you to come along this journey of discipleship with us. All right? So we see, I would argue, the first generation of discipleship here. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Okay, pause. Hold on. I just, I'm kind of jealous of this whole like the Lord speaking to Paul thing. I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you like read through that and you're like, God, where were you? Like when I was 13 and said, God, if you're real, turn off the light, you know? Um, like why, why couldn't you just do that? But yeah, here you are just showing up to Paul like, yo, Paul, I'm just here to encourage you a little bit, right? And he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Why does Jesus need to come and show up in a vision to Paul to say this? Well, let's see. He's been like in prison and beaten and who knows what, right? We know the stories of Paul. He's constantly being driven out of town. But Jesus comes to encourage him. That's part of discipleship, his encouragement. We see Jesus encouraging Paul here in a vision. And it's very good that Jesus did this because what happens next is, um, you'll see. Verses 12. When, but when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia. Yeah, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but we're just going to go with that, all right? The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now verses 13 through 16 goes, saying, this man is a persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, okay, so before Paul even opens his mouth, Galileo steps in. Now why are the Jews bringing him to Galileo? He's like, okay, look, um, Galileo is kind of the governor, you know, like he's the governor and whatever ruling he makes, it kind of becomes law. And The Jews are saying that Paul is preaching a new religion, and so it's against the law. So they're bringing him to proconsul Galileo, right? Galileo's like, hold up, wait a minute. And y'all know the rest of the song. Um, So here we have verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names, your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. He's saying Christianity is a continuation of Judaism. It is not separate. What you're doing is nonsense. Be gone. That's it. That's a simple thing that's happening to put it in really quick terms. 
Now here comes verse 17 that shows the immaturity. And notice how Paul didn't have to defend himself. So Jesus' encouragement in the vision comes true and how beautiful that is and how Paul was able to trust that and stay there for a while. We then come to this. Verse 17. Jews, they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So the other guy, Crispus, who just became a, a Christian, is no longer there, obviously, right? And so they have a new leader, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. I don't know about you, but I got this dude like up on like a tower doing his tribunal thing, and then the Jews start beating their leader. Can you feel the eyes just rolling into the back of his head? Like, oh gosh. You know, like the Robert Downey Jr. meme. Y'all know what I'm talking about, okay? So they're just like rolling into the back of their head. And here is what Christians do today. And I'm going to raise my hand because I am the probably one of the most guilty people here. Um, because I love debate. It's like a sport for me. I was a philosophy major. That's all you did. It's like a philosophy is just a, a degree in learning how to argue with people. Um, and it's fun. But for me, it's fun. But for like 98% of the population, it's not, as I've come to learn. And so I am the most guilty of this to this day. And it is like ongoing area of growth in my life. Um, to learn to just like, on social media especially, because it's just ripe for the picking. It's like, uh, and I still fall into that trap continually, uh, and I'm learning how to not do that, because I am horrible at falling into that trap. And why I say all this is because how many times have we argued or debated on social media and onlookers, just like how uh, Brent spoke last week, of like that debate between you and that person, it's not for you and that person. It's for all the people reading it, right? And so how many times do us as Christians debate with one another on a public forum like social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? Twitter is just a dumpster fire. Um, and you just, I can just feel, I can just feel the eyes of non-Christians rolling to the back of their heads of seeing Christians like, oh, there they go. There's the Jews beating their leader up again, right? Let's not be, let's not, let's end that culture. Let's get away from that, right? Let's not have non-Christians rolling their eyes at us um, for just being nincompoops. Is that, a, is that a word still? Yeah. <laughs> so here we are done with Corinth. We're gonna go forward. We're leaving Corinth and we're going to read verses 18 through 21 here. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Sincrea, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had to cut his hair for he was under a vow. We could talk about that. But we're just going to go right past it because it's not necessary for today. Um, and they came to Ephesus and he left them there. What? He left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So Paul doing his Paul thing, right? When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Which is like really weird to me. It's like, I'm going to go to Corinth. 
I'm going to go to Athens and I'm going to Corinth and I'm going to argue all the time with these Jews. Maybe it was a little bit like, you know, maybe I'm a little bit like Paul. I just like arguing, right? And then he gets to, to Ephesus and he goes in there and they're like, oh, we really like what you're saying. Can you stay for longer and talk? And he's like, you know, you're really just not arguing with me enough. I'm just kind of done with this place. You know, I'm just going to leave Priscilla and Aquila here. They're not too much on the arguing thing, but they're going to show you the love of Christ really well, okay? No, it's, it's really weird to me that Paul is like, no, but actually Paul is on his way back to Syria, right? So they came to Ephesus. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, but he himself went to the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking them of leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Yeah, that just, you think about that. Just how weird that is. But he had a mission. He had a plan. But also, when you think about Acts 29 and how we do things, it's kind of weird. In our kind of business culture in the West here, we want to keep our best people. We want to hold on to them. We don't want to let them leave. But Acts 29, we're saying, hey, you're awesome. Sapple you, raise you up. You're amazing. Yeah, if you could just leave, go over there. Um, there's some people that need Jesus, right? We send people out. We plant churches. That is what we do. We take our best. We raise them up. And then we say, hey, you go plant a church over here. And this is the first thing we're seeing this. We're seeing Priscilla and Aquila, who were not Christians, who get discipled by Paul. He works with them. They observe him. And then they come with him to Ephesus, which you got to think about. You're uprooting, you're uprooting your business, They've obviously got a decent business there. Offering that, go to Ephesus and help the church plant there. That's discipleship. It's an ongoing movement, constantly moving. And here is verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, I have a map for here because i got to show you this. Um, so if we look at Sincrea, right, and they go all the way to Ephesus, right? Now, if we look at Antioch up there, that's where Paul's headed. And it's like, oh, hey, that's a really long way to do it, Paul. Like, you could have just went above Cyprus, and then went to that really weird thing I can't pronounce, the Lucia Pereira, like Panera Bread. And so he would go up here and go. He could have made a straight line. But does he do that? No, we see Paul go down to Tyre and more things I can't pronounce. I'm not even going to pretend. Jerusalem, Damascus. This is where he does what I call his drive-by discipleship. Okay? This is Paul's drive-by discipleship. He could have made a straight beeline straight to Antioch and get bad. He obviously was kind of in a rush because he doesn't even stay in Ephesus to preach more. He just leaves. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila. He trusts them there. And then he leaves. And he could have gone straight back, but he doesn't. He takes the time to go town by town, city by city, to other believers, encouraging them, discipling them along the way. Right? I, I use the terminology, he muppets his way. I don't know if y'all remember the muppets and whenever they would travel, be like, ding, 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 ding. Right? He kind of muppets his way up Syria. And this is something I want us to take note of. Is Paul obviously had a plan. He needed to get to Syria, get to Antioch. But 
he takes the time to stop and encourage other believers. Maybe you're not in an intentional one-on-one discipleship right now, right? But are you taking the time for drive-bys? I, I feel really bad, like, and in in, when it comes to discipleship, this goes both ways. If I want to be discipled, sometimes I just put myself in someone's way because I need it. I need someone to hit me over the head. And the poor, you got the panthers, all right, I do a lot. I, my job, I have to go to their ne- neighborhood sometimes. And like poor Robert Panther, anytime I'm in his neighborhood, I'll be like, sitting text, like, hey, what's up, dude? You home? And he probably has learned now to say no. Because as soon as you say yes, I'm like, cool, be there in five minutes. And he, I just show up on his doorstep, and what's up? And he is there, and he's there to, to and it's a drive-by discipleship. Not me discipling him. No, it's him imparting wisdom to me. I've had him numerous times where I show up and he was like, oh, I've been meaning to talk to you. Yeah, you know that social media post you made? You're stupid, don't do that. He says it in a more loving way. I'm just paraphrasing, okay? And that's a drive-by discipleship. Another thing of mutual drive-by discipleship, another example is we recently, uh, we, we lost someone in our church recently and we had a, a, a little boy, the Emmert boy. And I was doing a job and um, it happened to be in the neighborhood of the Quayars, right? And me and, and Ross, we mutually disciple each other. We have this understanding that we can t- speak into one another's lives when we see something, see areas that need to be spoken into. It's a mutual discipleship. And I'm just there and I'm like, well, I'm in the area. Um, I'm seriously five minutes from his house. Ross, you home? Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm coming by. What? Yes, I'm coming by. I show up. And the beautiful thing is, is this is when we as a church are praying for the Emirate family and praying for that baby boy, right? And I show up there and we're just talking and we just start talking about how sad that is and it's just so shocking just how sudden it was. And Ross just is like, we need to stop and pray right now. We need to stop right now. We need to pray. And I was like, yeah, you're right. We need to do that like right now. And Ross leads us and his entire family in a prayer for the Emmer boy. And I was blessed by that. I was encouraged by that to know that I have another man in my life who's willing to call us to those things, to point us to those things, a mutual discipleship that if I wouldn't have just taken the time, it was a five-minute detour, I would not have had that. And that, that right there has changed me for the rest of my life, knowing that it's okay. It may be awkward a little bit. Like, hey, you know what? We're going to stop in the middle of this conversation. We're having a nice conversation. We're just going to pray right now. That's awkward. It's weird to some people. But you know what? It's beautiful. You don't think it was awkward in, I think, Luke chapter 5? Jesus is over here. He's got disciples and they're healing this lady. And then you have this one guy who's all paralyzed. And they're just like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to climb top of this roof. We're going to open up the roof. And we're just going to drop this guy right down here on Jesus. Can you imagine like Jesus is like, you know, like, you were healed. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, hey, what's up? And then, like, the disciples are like, what do we do? There's a guy coming from the ceiling. I don't know. What do, you, do you stop him? Do you, like, hold him up? Like, what do, what do we do? You know? But no, Jesus rolls with it. It's awkward. It's weird. Like, hey, yeah, come on. Let's go. Let's do this. Come on, yeah. We're going to heal you, too. This can be great. Right? Things are going to get awkward. They're going to get weird. But drive-by discipleship, I think, needs to happen more. We need to stop making beelines to things, and we need to start allowing more time in our busy schedules to reach out and encourage one another, to love one another, to learn from one another. Not just us over someone, but coming under someone. 
or a mutual discipleship? Are we doing that? Or are we too stinking busy getting from one place to the other that we don't have time to encourage another fellow believer? Let's make the time. Let's do what we have been called to do, right? Go forth and make disciples. And I'm speaking also from someone who needs to grow in this area tremendously, tremendously. Now here is, what's, this is what's really awesome, is here comes Priscilla and Aquila that are left in Ephesus. And here comes some young punk, right? Name Apollos. Verse 24. So we have Jesus who has discipled Paul, right? I'll make the argument that he's discipling Paul. He came up in a vision. Dang it, that's discipling. All right. Then, now if I come to you in a vision, that is, that, that's not discipling. That's just weird. Um, so we see Priscilla and Aquila there. They've been discipled by Paul. Now, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay, he's accurate, doesn't know the whole story, but he knows the baptism of John. I relate a lot to Apollos. Um, if you probably haven't noticed, I'm a little bit more this and walking and a little bit more active. Um, that's due to the part that I was a children's pastor and I've done student ministry for the past decade. So that's probably just what I'm used to to keep people's attention, right? But I'm a little more active. And when I was a young 20-something, um, I'm in my 30s now, but when I was a young 20-something, I got told by a lot of people, like, you're way too passionate for your own good. You're too passionate for your own good. You leave... Um, a rack of devastation behind you when I just want to sh show people Jesus and love people Jesus. And it was discipleship. It wasn't people just saying, hey, you're too passionate for your own good. Stop that. Oh, thanks. That really helps. I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me to stop it. <laughs> like, really? But then there were some men that saw that and said, I see something. He's passionate. He needs to shut up sometimes. Let's help him in that. And they took me under my wing, under their wing, not my wing. Took me under their wing and said, hey, I love your heart. Let's rein it in. Let's direct it. And I'm still learning a tremendous amount. I've come a long way. Ask my wife. I still got a long way to go. And they directed me. Guys, I can't tell you I didn't grow up, try not to cry. Um, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up knowing what it looked like to raise a family loving Jesus. I don't know what it looks like to love, I didn't know what it looked like to love a woman the way Christ is called to love a wife, right? I don't know what it looks like to discipline a child in the way the gospel compels us to. I didn't know that. I still have a long way to go. But if it wasn't for men discipling me and taking me into their home, and once again, awkward, and having, sitting at the dinner table with men and seeing how they corrected their sons in gentleness without just yelling at them, and seeing how 
various men loving their wife and encouraging them. Guys, I wouldn't know what to do. I still don't know what I'm doing, but I at least halfway know because men discipled me. If you know someone that is a young single guy, bring them into your home. If you're a single guy, invite yourself into their home. Stop with this notion of like, oh, I don't want to inconvenience them, you know, like, it's, it's gonna, maybe their house is dirty. They don't want people to see that. Look, here's the deal. Everyone's house is dirty, all right? Everyone's house is dirty. If your house isn't dirty, you're weird and you need a Netflix series about you, okay? <laughs> and here's what I say. And I'll just go on this little tangent. My wife has given me, has given me the permission to tell this. Every t- other Tuesday, there's going to be an argument in the Tansy home. An argument. And that argument is over the definition of what is clean. You have men's definition, you have women's definition, okay? And we all know it's true. Me, tidying up and picking up is part of cleaning. You tidy up, pick up, and then you, you clean. Wax on, wax off, right? My wife's definition is not that. No, cleaning is with the cleaner and the, the and I'm like, no, no, no. So every two weeks, we have cleaners come. I decided we have three kids now. I have... While the three kids are making a mess in this room, my wife's cleaning this room, and then they'll flip. And then it's never clean all at once. So I was like, babe, can I have cleaners come like every two weeks and just get a blank slate? And she's like, yes, please. I'm like, thank you. I'm glad that we can bless you with that. But when they come up, my wife, who is not a morning person, she springs out of bed on Tuesdays, every other Tuesday, and she starts, <laughs> and I'm just kind of just making my coffee. What are you doing? The cleaners are coming. I know. You're doing what I pay them to do. <laughs> and, and so she's like, no, that is not cleaning. We need to tidy up so they can clean. Look, look, here's the deal. In order to clean, you got to tidy up. Tidy up and clean. That's all under one, same umbrella to me. She's like, you do not. And it's just going to be that way. And I say all this jokingly to say, like, when people are so afraid of, like, walking into someone else's mess, like, oh, I can't text them five minutes before and show up to their house and inconvenience them. What if they haven't cleaned? So what? You come to my house three out of the seven days, there's going to be probably up to here in dishes. We, we, why? Because we cook every meal, right? There's dishes everywhere. There's toys everywhere. I mean, you got to like walk like this through our house. And if you show up to my house and be like, hey, welcome. Our house is lived in. Right? Stop worrying about inconveniencing people. Do some drive-bys, right? Not in like, you know, you know what, um, not those kind of drive but like the biblical Paul-type drive-by, okay? So, anyways, let's get back to Apollos. Uh, sorry for that tangent. I just had to share that, that fun little thing we go through because I know you all go through it. Don't even, don't even pretend like you and your wife don't have the same kind of argument, all right? If you don't, you need another Netflix series. I mean, it's just going to happen. So we have Apollos. Now here's the beautiful, beautiful, amazing thing that we see. He began to speak boldly, boldly in the synagogue, verse 26. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They're living out Galatians 6.1. Doing it in a spirit of gentleness. They didn't call him out publicly while he's up there teaching, hey, you don't got it all. They come alongside him. Guess what they do? 
What's the word? What's the word? Thank you. Discipleship. Right? They discipled him. And guess what happens? We go to verses 27 and 28. They disciple him. They give him the full story, which was probably amazing. Like he just knew the story of Jesus, but now it's like, wait, so now he's died? What happened next? And they're like, he rose again. He did what he said he was going to do. He did what he said he was going to do. That's amazing. Right? So now he goes forth knowing the full story. And what happens? They send him out. Verses 27. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace have believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Paulos was so influential in presenting the gospel that some compared him to Paul. Paul even has to talk about Apollos. We see the lineage of discipleship, right? Jesus disciples Paul. Paul disciples Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila disciple Apollos. And Apollos goes and disciples others. And they disciple others. And then hence, therefore, too, you are in the seat right now listening to this sermon being said, go forth, preach the gospel, make disciples. Because of the love that has been given to us, we need to now pour it out. Pour it out with immense greatness, if I want to word it that way. Are we doing that well? Now, here's the deal. Here's the practical side. He's like, great, Hudson, thank you. Thank you. You make me feel horrible for not discipling or whatever. I hope you don't feel horrible. I hope this encourages you to see the beauty in when we disciple and the fruits from it. We see the fruits from Paul's discipleship. We see how we are very much like Paul and how we can continue doing so. So here are, the, the, here are some excuses I hear, and then, and then we're going to start, I'm going to wrap it up, all right? Here are the excuses. Time. I don't have enough time. Or I'm not qualified. Or uh, because of this area and, and a lot of people being in the oil and gas, they're always out of town. So we're going we're gonna to tackle time, all right? I don't like excuses, um, I just don't. And the time excuse is the biggest lie we tell ourselves, especially in our culture. I just don't have the time. I've got so much going on. Do you see all the stuff I'm doing? I don't have the time. Let me help you here. I'm going to break this down, okay? So how many hours in a week do we have? 168. I think, I don't know. I'm not a math vacation guy. Hours in a week, 106. So this is, okay, if you're not a number person, just ignore me for the next couple of slides, okay? And then once I get to the final one, I'll like snap you out of it, all right? But if you're a number guy, girl, whichever you are, go. We have hours in a week, 168. We have eight hours of sleeping. That's right. I'm giving you the magical eight hours. I know none of you have it. None of you get it. Unless you're single and without kids, then you're getting way more than enough. Eight hours of sleep. 56. Then we have a 50-hour work week. Why am I giving you 50 hours? Because I know you're just all good, hard-working Americans, you know, doing your Protestant work ethic and just doing 50 hours, right? 50 hours of work, not 40. I'm going to add 10 onto that. Then we have meal times. I'm going to give you an hour each day for meals, right? Three meals a day, seven days a week, 21 hours each week eating meals. Then you have family time. I'm giving you three hours of intentional, uninterrupted family time each day, 21 hours. A week. Personal time. All you introverts, I'm giving you two hours a day, all right? 
too. Don't abuse it. No. Two hours a day, that's 14 hours. You can use it all in one day, like on a Saturday playing golf. I think it takes 14 hours to play golf, right? Something like that. So you have personal time, 14 hours. What is, okay, not numbers people, pay attention. You are back to the time remaining is, oh, six, six, six hours. I've given you eight hours of sleep, 50 hours of working, personal time, family time. What are we doing with the six hours? Are we discipling? Are we intentionally discipling? Are we drive-by discipling? What are we doing with those six hours? <laughs> we need to redeem our time. We're so busy. Stop it. I know that's like the opposite of what I said earlier. I want to say, hey, you're too passionate for your own good. Stop it. Okay. I'm saying just stop it. Make the time. You have the time. You're just not prioritizing it. We are not prioritizing the great commission. The last thing that Jesus said on this earth, we are not prioritizing. It's time that we start. It's time that I start. It's awkward. It's going to be awkward. Ask someone to disciple you if you haven't been discipled. Weird. Do it. Just do it. Try it out. See what happens. Right? You know someone that can maybe use some discipleship? That's even more awkward. But offer, hey, let's start meeting one-on-one. Let's do this together, one-on-one. Let's get intentional in Scripture. Let's dig in. What does it look like to disciple? It's different for everyone. Right? If you don't feel qualified, sorry, you're wrong. If you're a believer, you are qualified. It's in the Bible. It's 1 Peter 2.9. You can go to it later, read it. Okay? Royal priesthood, that thing. You're qualified. You can disciple. We can disciple. We are called to disciple. All right? And if you're out of town a lot, one word. Technology. <laughs> right? FaceTime. Texting. John Fox made me get Marco Polo, which is the one person I would never think would use Marco Polo. And he makes me get Marco Polo, and so I'm having to, like, talk to my phone to a screen, and then he talks back. It's weird. Anyways, I'm doing it because I love John, all right? So technology, we can disciple. If you are out of town too much, it doesn't matter. Technology. And it's going to be awkward. And it's going to be weird. Get over it. Things are awkward. The Bible's full of awkward things. Jesus rolled with it. Paul rolled with it. We roll with it. So what are we doing? Invite someone to do some mutual discipleship, one-on-one. -on -one. Let's get intentional. Let's grow. It is the primary tool. It is a primary tool the Lord uses to grow his church, spiritually and also numerically, right? Because if that wasn't the case, we wouldn't be here this morning. So are we doing our part? Are we fulfilling the Great Commission? Really? Really, really need to. That is the primary need in our area. We live in a pretty good area. There's not a lot of poor people. But there's a lot of people in relational poverty. That's our number one need in our area. Are we meeting that need? 